Hello, everyone. You are listening to an encore presentation of the Word in the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. We will be back live with a brand new episode next week. And until then, keep us in your prayers. You're drowned by my perfect fire, my perfect life. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill. That is Scott Powell. That's over there, Father Peter Muzzit. And we are the Lanky Guys. We, you better believe we are. And we are so happy that you've joined us today. You better believe we are. You better believe it, sucker. Yeah, they do, sucker. <laughs> Dude, I, I think that I'm going to get you, sucker, is one of my favorite movies of all time. I guarantee everybody who listens already knows that. This week... Um, which is you also known, if it was a feast day of somebody particular, it's St. Seraphim of Montegranaro. Why did I think it was uh, St. Um, Faustina? Faustina. That was this last Sunday. It was? Yeah, St. Faustina Kowalska. St. Faustina Kowalska. Kowalska. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I missed it completely. Yeah, dude, that's not uh, normal. Thanks for bringing it up in your homily. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear Muhammad. Oh, I heard Father Brady's. Yeah, that's Thanks a okay. lot, Father Brady. Okay, well, it is the 28th. No, wait, whose feast day is it again? I don't know. Some dude named... Um, some um, dude. He's never going to pray for you. Saint He's Seraphim never gonna... of Montegranaro. He's not going to intercede for you because you just insulted him. Oh, I'm Do sorry. Do you think saints in heaven hold grudges? I don't probably know. Not. No, probably not. They're probably pretty forgiving. That's just my sense. They know things for real, though, and... um. But today, we're going to start off with the first reading, which is... Oh, wow. We're just jumping right in. Dude, okay. yeah. I mean, I'm just like... Dude, I love I, it. I'm getting cray Oh, this is what I want every time. <laughs> it's like Christmas for me. <laughs> it's like Christmas? Really? No. You don't like what I say? I do. I love you very Come much. Come on, man. I know. See, now we're just not starting. <laughs> we see, what, see what I did right there? <laughs> Whose Christmas is it now? Okay, the first reading is Isaiah 25, 6 through 10a. Which is a very important passage in the story of Scripture. Dude, I, one dude, of I felt like I was two years old when you just said, <laughs> now that's a very important it passage, is. boys and girls. It is actually really important. And, and, and it, it's also at every funeral in the whole universe. Is it? Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh, okay. Good to know. Especially because we're, we're in Boulder and we're on the hill. Our responsorial psalm is also read oftentimes at funerals. Oh, right? yeah. Psalm 23, which is, if you know no other psalms, I bet you know this one. The whole, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me yeah, lie down Psalm 23 is, 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 like, is like the king of all yeah. psalms. If you know nothing else, you know that one, probably, because yeah. you've probably gone to a funeral. So Psalm 23, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. A. 3. B through four, and then five and six. And the strophe. No, the versicle, oh. the verse. <laughs> the, ver- the response oracle. Sickle, the, the response oracle. six, C and D. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second reading is um, from Philippians 4, Ooh. 12 to 14, That's, 19 yeah. to 20. I didn't read the interloping verse. Father Peter. I can't believe that I am an interloper, and I have I have had such a lacuna. Matthew twenty-two verses one through fourteen is our gospel, unless you choose the shorter version, which is verses one through ten, which is lame. Anyway, um, great. So here we are. Here we are in Isaiah. Do we ever leave Isaiah? I don't think we do. We do sometimes. I mean, like. Basically, it's like we you can count on it being like Ezekiel or Isaiah or like Genesis. And or Jeremiah or Hosea sometimes or Amos. We've had a lot. Don't be all melancholic about how many times. Okay, I'm Isaiah. a little, you know what? You're I in a weird to, place right now. I need to study more Isaiah. No, you're good. You don't. Um, you know this one, though. 
So this is a very famous passage, right? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a rich food, a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy rich food, pure choice wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. The reproach from his people he will remove from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. And on that day it will be said, Behold our God to whom we looked to save us. This is the Lord to whom, for whom we have looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Now, I, I read the whole thing just because there's so much going on here. I think it's important just to kind of get it in everybody's heads. This is essentially the word on the hill oh, <laughs> on this mountain. Your pointing was even better. You looked like a... A nightclub singer. Hey, everybody. How you doing out there? Anybody from Cleveland? All right. Here we go. Um, <laughs> this is the one on the hill. Thanks, Detroit. Um, on this mountain, the Lord of the... Okay. okay. Here's what's kind of weird. Now, we've talked about Isaiah a lot. Everybody knows the good I got thing my, Isaiah. I got my eyes on you. Um, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts... What? Why are I'm you just looking, looking at like you. I'm, I know. I don't like I'm it. I'm waiting for you to talk. I, I'm all nervous now. Now I'm all, I'm all nervous. Okay. Isaiah, split into two parts, right? Part one, stop looking at me like that. I know. Stop looking at me, Swan. <laughs> so part one, <laughs> chapters one through 39, uh-huh. is uh, you're looking at me like like a five-year-old. <laughs> I like, guess. Oh, what are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> you're killing me. The first half of the book. This is, we're going to have to edit this part out. Why? Because. This is fun. People enjoy our banter. <laughs> they do. No, they don't. Chapters one through 39. Chapters 1 through 39 is all about the book of judgment. So, again, you've broken the covenant, you've been lame, you're going to get punished. Chapters 40 through 66 is the book of consolation. That even though you're going to get punished, God is going to restore and redeem and bring great good and and restore you, you resurrect you in a certain sense. Yeah. However... Which section does this come from? This comes from the section of woe, the right. the, the, the book of, of woe, So, because it's 25. Yeah, so throughout the book of woe, even though it's all about woe, 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 woe. I mean woe. woe, even though there's a lot of woe in it, um, there's always around every corner, there's, there's hints, there's signs that God is going to restore. This is one of the most famous, it, it almost becomes, it becomes almost disingenuous sounding when we're splitting the book into two parts, because... Most of the most profound, a lot of the most profound words of consolation and comfort and restoration come from the first half of the book. But that's important because God is a good teacher and he's a good parent. He's a good father. So in the midst of his punishment, he wants his people to know this punishment is not for its own sake. It's for the sake of restoration. It's for the sake of building you back up because I love you, right? This is the thing that happens in every single one of our lives, by the way. I mean, like this is the pattern of the spiritual life is we are going to have to go through these times of woe that are totally intense and overburdening. Whoa. Whoa. And yet the Lord will send little consolations in the midst of it. Yeah, it's funny. Right after he says this, he talks about the nation of Moab and how they're going to be slaughtered and trampled down. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really wedged in there. A couple things about this. What? Any thoughts about this, first of all? Some people say that I don't let you talk enough when they write feedback about the podcast. I don't try not to let you talk enough. I just get excited. <laughs> you get so excited. So, okay, I have a lot I well, I have a lot of things to say. Um two major things that are going on here. Here is a reference to a here's three major components here. Okay. A reference to a feast. Yep. A mountain and pe- the people feasting coming from all nations, right? Ooh. So those are the three components that I bring out of this. Now, the feast, right? Um there are four feasts 
that are actually happen on Mount Zion throughout the Old Testament? Tabernacles? Uh, Booths? No, no. Father Peter. What what are the I don't know. Oh, oh I see what you're saying. The festivals. No, no, I'm the sorry, festivals. There, it's I, not I, the, I was just guessing. No, no, I I you misunderstood me. There's not four festivals that are celebrated on Mount Zion. Four times in the Old Testament people eat things on the old on the mount on the mountain. Oh, okay. Have a meal up there. So there's feasts and festivals oh, yeah. so, all so, the time. So, so like Abraham um at one point ate the Shekinah. The Shekinah. <laughs> Abraham ate the <laughs> I'm just kidding. That I was just the glory cloud. The, the glory cloud. He's like, I'm hungry, dude. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, no. This just, is a weird one. This week. This no, is weird. The first one, um, King David gave a huge feast on Mount Zion when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem. So that's the first time you see people eating a big feast on top of Mount Zion. So right when yeah, remember it, it, it's in uh, where is it? Second Samuel six. He's got peace from his enemies round about. They brought the co- Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. They made it the capital. Big feast was celebrated. Right. Second time, Solomon gave a huge feast when the temple was completed and when they dedicated it. So they built the temple. Huge feast on Mount Zion. Right. That's Sweet. the second recorded one. Okay. Um, the third one is in it's in uh, Second Chronicles. I think King Hezekiah celebrates the Passover for the people of Israel. And then Josiah, King Josiah, who was one of the only righteous kings in the south, he did the same thing. Um, I think it's in Second Chronicles as well. So there's four, which none of those are, are, you know, need to be known on their own right. But it's important that there's four times. Basically, all of these, all of these feasts were celebrations of either the temple or the sanctuary or celebrations of the Passover. Does oh. that make sense? So there's there's a connection here. I'm, I'm stealing a lot of this from John Bergsma, who wrote about this recently. Okay, but so there are connections it, with the tabernacle or the temple or the Passover meal. Every time you see a feast celebrated on Mount Zion, which is only four times, it's with one of those things. So we're already there's this built-in reality. We know what we're looking toward. We know what we're pointing ahead to, right? So as soon as Isaiah goes for this moment, then we know you should be thinking we're, we're, of temples and Passovers. Temples and Passovers. So, which is really, I mean, gosh, that's actually really important, and that's it's huge. It's really beautiful to even start to see it in that light. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, huge. But there's another, there's another key component to this, which is the name of the mountain. So, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. Do you know where else in the Bible that almost exact line shows up? Isn't it Yahweh Yira? That's what it means in Hebrew. Uriah. The Lord will provide. Yeah, the Lord provide. Isn't that... Um, you said I, it Abraham. And it's Abraham, right? Oh, I didn't realize that this was that language going on It's here. a reference. It's a veiled reference. And I actually tried to find this in all the commentaries I could find. Nobody mentioned it, which I thought was weird. That's, I didn't read that many. That's weird. Maybe I read all the bad ones. We need to write a lanky guy's commentary. <laughs> let's not call it that. Okay, that's agreed. Nobody's going to take it seriously. But um, yeah, so when Abraham goes up to sacrifice Isaac, his son, remember that story, and God stays his hand and he says, you know, you, you were faithful, I, you were trustworthy, but there's a there's a ram caught in the thicket. and God, so Because God himself will provide the lamb, well, but there was a ram. But what Abraham does is rename the mountain. Oh, he yeah. He says, so he, it was, uh, oh, what was the name of the mountain originally? Moriah. Mount Moriah. Yeah, Mount Moriah, which is actually a mountain range, Moriah. So we're not sure exactly which one it was, but he goes up and he renames that one Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. Yeah. So And that yeah. mountain is believed to be what? Later on. About Zion. Mount Zion, where they build the temple and everything else. So uh, here's the key, though. Moriah, again, it's a mountain range. So there's, we don't know exactly which one. So that means Mount Moriah, or the, the Moriah Mountains, properly speaking, are the mountains all surrounding Jerusalem and the temple, which means where is Jesus actually crucified? 
on the mountain which overlooks Yahweh Yirah, the mountain where the Lord will provide, the lamb that's provided for the sacrifice. So, I mean, this whole thing, the whole Abraham story is pointing ahead toward Jesus. Isaiah taking up the Abrahamic reference of the lamb being provided on that mountain now is pointing to a giant feast to be celebrated on that mountain. Who's the feast to be celebrated by? Uh, The third component that was in there. Remember I said there were three components to that reading. Yeah, I forgot the third one. A feast a mountain, and all the nations. Oh, yeah. So Isaiah is saying, what is the Lord going to provide? If he knows his Old Testament, he's saying the Lord's going to provide a lamb for a giant feast for all nations. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's one option on what that (laughs) reality is. But it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's really heavily built in there. But... Part of, the, part of what's fascinating about this is that before it and after it, there's all this talk about all the nations being punished. But it all, that kind of tells me there's not a fatalism toward God's plan. Okay, you're not part of Israel, you're out. No, all the nations are going to enjoy this. If you are an unfaithful person from the foreign nations, there's punishment. If you're unfaithful from Israel, there's punishment. Just being a part of Israel doesn't guarantee you salvation. Just being a part of the other nations doesn't guarantee you exclusion from it. God is going to judge the hearts of all, and this is going to be opened up as a giant worldwide feast for all the people to flock to. There's a caveat, and that's what comes in the gospel, though. Well, this is this is a strange thing. I mean, so you could start to take what Isaiah is saying and actually turn it into um, a rigorous temple interpretation and say, you know what? Okay, all the nations actually have to join together on Mount Moriah, which is, so, which is, uh, I mean, on the on the Temple Mount, that's which actually is what a lot of Christians believe. Yeah, which is which is where a lot of Christians are, like in in um, uh, a real su- Zionism. Zion on Zionism. <laughs> I don't just one, just one. Zion on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, which is not what which we're going to get to, yes. and we're going to be able to actually say why this is not actually going to be just specifically only the Temple Mount. Exactly. Which, practically speaking, to well, be no, able to have no, all it the is nations, specifically the Temple Mount, but it ah. overflows. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we, do we tell them now, or do we let? Well, them... let's let's just be image image driven here for a second. Okay, what is the temple that we're talking about here? Well. That's the really, real temple. The real temple. Let's spell the, the, it. Let's spell it. Sol- Solomon's temple. No, but what is this? That's not the mountain on which all the nations will eventually gather eschatologically. No. That, what's that, the new temple? The new temple gonna... is Jesus. And so what's the mount that Jesus is on? The rock of Peter. What's the mount? Literally. Think imagery. Think literal. Um, St. Peter's. Is Jesus ever, every day, every moment of every day, on a mount somewhere? On a height? Oh, it's the altar. I see the altar as sort of a new temple mount. Where will the people of all of the earth gather? On the mount of Jesus' altar. So Jesus is atop an altar in every church and everywhere everywhere in the world. Dude, you're blowing my mind. flock to that mount. I mean, I think that's why... The sanctuary is always lifted up a little bit. It's always raised. I mean, I know it's there's practical reasons, but I always think of it as a mount in a certain sense. I Jesus, was, the temple, yeah. is atop that mount, and we all flock up it to receive him. And that's I actually that where, last night, I was giving a church tour to the RCIA candidates, oh, cool. and the RCIA folks, and talking specifically. They said, why is the crucifix so small? So I said, because the, the, the church is not about, the center of the church is not the crucifix. It's mm. the altar. 
Yes, that's because, exactly right. Because it is the it it, yeah. it is where everything is is taking place and all the imagery that's associated with that. Had, that in in essence, it's actually become the the tree of the fruit of life. Absolutely. I mean, the garden has been opened again, and this is actually where we flock to the tree of life to be nourished. And, Absolutely. But yet at the same time, that's the mountain, and that's where I think that if you take the connection of Adam yep. and you say, okay, this is actually where Adam died, then in a certain sense, what we're saying is we're saying. Um, that um, Eden is opened again. Yes. That's why there's so exactly. much garden imagery specifically associated with churches yes. in in the in so many periods of history. I mean, it's, and that's it's, why ugly churches actually matter. They, I mean, the, the aesthetics of the church actually matters a great deal because it's a theological statement. As a bishop friend of mine once said, you shouldn't have a church that you could easily sell to Pizza Hut without them having to do any res- renovations to it. Come on, do it in the right accent, though. No. <laughs> So well, if the diocese goes down, we could sell half the parishes to Pizza Hut, and they wouldn't have to make any changes. <laughs> Dude, good thing. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> I needed That's that for, you. for my soul. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, that brings us to the psalm, though, which is really—I I think that literally brings us to the psalm. I mean, literally. Well, that didn't come— <laughs> <laughs> so Psalm 23, and I'm borrowing the my thought, some of the thoughts on the first two readings from John Bergsma. I mentioned that. He has a, a great blog about some of these readings. Um, and he just had some good insights this week. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Um, but uh, Psalm 23, he talks about how for the fathers of the church, Psalm 23 was sacramental catechesis. It was how they actually taught about the sacraments. Because if you read through Psalms 23, so the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, in green pastures or verdant pastures, he gives me rest or repose beside restful waters. He leads me. He refreshes my soul. Um, the, the ideas of, of good green pastures and a table prepared for the sheep, the father saw as the Eucharistic meal. The green pastures and the table that sort of set up the restful waters that restore our soul was the waters of baptism, they said. It talks, one of the strophes talks about the head anointed with oil. They said, oh, that's confirmation. You can kind of go through my, my overflowing cup, the chalice of the Eucharist. You can go through every strophe of... Psalm 23, and the Father said, you can find all the Eucharistic imagery. I'm sorry, all the, the sacramental oh, yeah. imagery. You anoint my head with oil, yeah. my cup overflows. Yeah. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. The making me lie down in green pastures. Um, he suggests that John and Mark may have had this in mind when they, when they, were, they were telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. When they all lie down, they recline in the pasture in a certain sense as oh, they're yeah. about to be fed with the bread. Well, oh, that's really interesting because that's going to link us right up to the gospel. Okay. Reclining? He had them all the all oh, the people at the feast recline. Mm, mm, interesting. So, I like that. So put put that in your uh reserves in all your right, man. in your uh, four um intellectual senses according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Ah, One of them is on your memory. Mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh well. Um yeah. He also talked about there being themes of the resurrection. So Tra- uh, the mass translation of verse three says he refreshes my soul, but you can actually translate the Hebrew of this. He makes my soul return to life, which is interesting because you have re- resurrection imagery Ooh. coming back and, you know, through the, sh- the darkness of death, through the valley of the shadow of death, all these things, you know, bring brought back to life. The imagery in, in Psalm 23 is super, super rich. Gosh, you know, it's and the fathers funny. of the church just had a heyday with it. Yeah. They I mean, it's it. so popular, but I don't um, ever really... Like I honestly, because it's so popular, I'm I have this kind of like totally. hipster irony where I'm like, oh. yeah, I know that everybody knows that one, and that's about as far as I get in thinking about it. But thanks for refreshing <laughs> my soul. On oh, that one. I brought it back to life. Yeah. 
in a verdant pasture. You better believe on it, this man. hill where there's lots of choice wines and ju- juicy meats. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know why that struck me as so funny. <laughs> that tickled my little fancy. All right. For the second reading, Philippians. I almost said the fourth reading because it's from Philippians 4. <laughs> All right, second Philippians. No, Philippians. Dude, oh, God. quit flipping out, dude. Oh, you better take over here. I'm not speaking coherently. That's okay because I know how to live in humble circumstances. Ooh, I also know how to live good. in abundance. In every circumstances and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. I can do all things in him who strengthens mm. me. Still, it was kind of you to share in my distress. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like the most condescending line? It does. So I it was really kind of you to want to do that, he, but I'm fine. Well, he's like, he's like, I know the secret of how to do all this stuff. He's like, but thanks for, <laughs> thanks for thanks showing for trying. up. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, I think it's hilarious. But then what? what what's the missing piece in it, the middle? It, it's simply some some geographic information. He talks about when I left Macedonia, I went into partnership. I went to Thessaloniki. It, ta- it it's it's some travelogue notes, really. I mean, he he says some important things, uh, but it, it's it's skippable. He talks about some of his travels, really. Oh wow! Okay, cool. So, yeah, which, which I'm sure there's some deep theological meaning if you're willing to go there. But yeah, no, I'm not trying to write it off. No, but but every once in a while, they, there is a good exclusion for the content that we're trying to grasp. And with. it's not that this shouldn't graspable? be a part of the, graspable, right? The can't the responsible. The responsible. We're graspling with it. I love passages like that though because they remind me that this is a real letter from a real person who's actually doing real things to another group. You know. Yep. It's like when he talks about how he left his jacket behind in Troas, and he asked him to bring the books he forgot. <laughs> I love those things because they remind you it's a real person writing a real letter. Yeah. But anyway, um, this reminds me of what he said back, and I think it was chapter two or so. Remember where he said, he was, it was, this was a couple of weeks ago, he was in prison, and he said, basically, you know what, they can kill me or they can keep me alive. If they kill me, I'll go be with Jesus. If they keep me alive and free me, I'll, I'll just go spread the gospel more. Yeah, this is going to be no, awesome. That's the secret. I mean, that's the answer to this question. He knows how to live in humble circumstances and with abundance. He knows the secret of being well-fed and going hungry. If he's well-fed, then great. He'll have energy for the journey to go spread the gospel. If he is starved and in prison, then fine, he'll go be with Jesus. I mean, he actually already told you the secret to this back in, I think, chapter two. And the secret was simply um, that which we hope in cannot actually, if we're, let's see, I'm not saying this right. Um, our happiness leaves us when that which is most dear to us is taken away, right? That's the kind of people that we are. Our happiness leaves us when that which is most dear to us is taken away. So if you steal the broccoli out of my fridge back home, I'm not going to be that upset. I'll, I'll pull through. But, you know, if you take, you know, if I stole your your brand new iPhone 6, you're probably going to be pretty upset, <laughs> right? Yeah, Because we, we attach, you know, our, our joy is taken. So Paul's reached... What he's describing here is simply um, detachment. He says, if they, I remember I, you know, I, I for at one point in my life, I thought it was called to be a CFR priest or brother. And so I went and stayed with them in the Bronx, these Franciscan priests. And a buddy of mine who I went to college with, he was out there and he was taking his final vows during one visit. I was in the Bronx and he was saying, he's, he's like, life is great. He had this thick New York accent. He's like, life is great. I get up in the morning, I look in the closet, and I'm like, I'm going to go out of the gray one or the gray one. He's like, I have two habits that I own. He's like, I go out on the streets. I don't have a wallet. I don't have any money. He's like, somebody mugs me. I've got nothing for them to steal. So he's like, I can walk out of my house every single day with total freedom because there's nothing anyone can do to me. I've got no money to steal. I've got no car to take. I've simply got my habit and I've got my ministry. And if they kill me, they kill me. But I don't have anything that they can take from me. I am totally free. 
And I just thought that was really, really beautiful. And in a certain sense, that's what Paul's saying. If that which is most important to me is actually life in Jesus, then you can't take that away. You can't steal that. Death in a prison cell is not going to take that away, which, nor is being free to go and minister and travel to Macedonia. Which is such an interesting thing to deal with spiritually is if you're experiencing loss in the things of the world, the secret is is to actually recognize that those things go away yeah. so that you can have intimacy with Christ. And yeah. so that you can actually be with him. And that that's actually the secret. I mean, it's like this summer, I uh, I lost the map that I was making for the Camino Ooh. de Santiago. Uh-oh. And I was like so excited. I preached about this last weekend. And it was like, and it was taken from, I mean, it, it was it was on a table and it was gone. It had all the money that I made from the other maps that I had sold. So it was just like money and this, but it was, it was like at the heart of what I was doing and Ooh. it was taken Ooh. and it was the best lesson I could have learned. Wow. That's powerful. Because I, I got, that. To, I got to detach and the Lord said, no, I, I care more about your devotion to me than anything else. And once you have that worked out, then wow. you, then everything will be given back to you a hundred percent flowing over, packed mm. down. And that's actually, that's the same thing that Peter had to deal with as they were, yes. just, Peter was like, we gave up everything for you. What do yeah. we get back? And Jesus is like, yeah. you get everything and you get some persecution in the midst of it totally. too. Totally. Totally. That's and, good. That's good. And that's why God will fully supply whatever you need in accord with his glories for just in Christ to Jesus. And that's, that's where like, when we're looking, yeah. we're saying, okay, what is this feast? I mean, we have to look and, and like, it really is a provocative question. It of, is. Of, of going like this rich choice foods and tremendous wine. I mean, like that sounds awesome. Mm. Like with all the nations, with all of the people in on the, on the Mount that is most yes. treasured in my heart to go and to be yes. able to do that and to look at that feast. I say, Oh man, that is so profoundly what I desired. And that's yes. what, and what I need is communion and food and, and that experience. But like, but it provokes a question in it of what, what is that really? Absolutely. For all of us. Yeah. For, for all of us. That's why we are wondering what Matthew is going to tell us about what this Matthew, feast is. Matthew, what's up? <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't even know what um, that was, dude. It's not anything. We're continuing on. In our, I, I think we've been pretty linear in Matthew for the last few weeks, which is cool. We're not jumping around much. Um, jump up, jump up, and get down. Jump around. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, so dude. Matthew 20. Do you know that that song rocked the whole world, dude? Dude, House of Pain. Oh, yeah. They, it they rocked did. every high school dance, no, probably t- still to this day. To this day. I mean, like, dude, they like, dude, jump, jump up. Around. My, <laughs> there's my friend. So, whenever there was a dance, you know, we would always jump around in that. There's a, there's, if you listen closely to the song, there's someone just screaming in the background. <laughs> really? So, we'd always imitate that. Like, is it, is, Boom, boom, boom. Somebody's going, ah! <laughs> 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 it's really funny. <laughs> you guys should all listen to it sometime. Yeah. Or maybe I'll edit this out yeah, again. Maybe. <laughs> a lot of editing this week. Matthew 24. So, uh, no, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Um, in Matthew 22 and 23, he, he's been telling these parables about the kingdom for a while now. Matthew 22 and 23, he really starts to enter into conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple. Okay. So this is it's starting to heat up, and the parables are getting more and more intense, and they're really going to start to push back on him now. And so this is uh, the first in that sort of line of parables that are really going to kind of get get antsy or amped up. I, crazy. Cray. Cray, cray. Um, <laughs> so here's what it says. Jesus spoke. We have to take this piece by piece. Jesus spoke again in 
Jesus again in reply spoke to the chief priests and the elders of the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants. So remember, we've been talking about parables of the kingdom. Okay? Yep, absolutely. So it, this one is like, oh, he's like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That's a big deal. The wedding feast for the king's son, that's that's huge, right? And we all know that because it's a parable, judgment's coming. Judgment's are coming. But we also know because it's in the theme of the ones he's been telling that chances are we're going to get a retelling of salvation history again. Oh. Because that's what the parables lately have been doing. Oh, yeah, in a big way. In absolutely. A big way. This one's that, in a huge way. And, and the, the servants, I mean, we know are, are identified with the prophets and with the holy people yeah, of exactly, Israel. Exactly. That was what? Just last week, right? Yeah. So he dispatched his servants. And again, if you're thinking salvation history, oh, yeah. So God wanted to give this wedding feast. He wanted a celebration like Isaiah talks about. So he dispatched his servants the prophets, in other words, to summon the invited guests to the feast. But they refused to come. Who do you think the invited guests were? Um, If we're talking about salvation history. Israel. Israel, right? The prophets were sent to Israel, both north and the south, to invite them to this feast, but they refused to come. A second time, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet, my calves, my fatted... Uh, my fatted cattle are killed. Everything's ready, so come to the feast. But they ignored, some ignored the invitation. They went away, went to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated, and killed them. Again, this is salvation history. This is what the people do to the prophets. They either ignore them, or they lay waste to them, or they kill them. That happens to all the prophets. So the king was ticked, right? The king yeah. was enraged. Sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Does that ever happen? In the Old Testament? Well, I mean, we have, we have some history. of the Exodus. Does the king, because they rejected the servants and their message, does the king ever send troops to burn and destroy their city? Uh, if this is Israel, yeah, and Israel didn't listen to the prophets, and the parable says because they didn't listen to the prophets, he sent troops to burn and destroy their city, when does that happen? We don't have that till 70 AD. It happened at Babylon. Well, it happened in Babylon. But, that's but, what, but you can look back and be like, this story- Did I say story, the Exodus? You did. Oh, man, I meant to say the, meant uh, ex- the exile. The exile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this did happen. It's going to happen again, and that's why Jesus is using this as a warning. But this already happened. Like, you can go through the whole thing, and it took place. Um, let's see. They burned their city. It's interesting, though, to think of God sending troops to burn and destroy the city. But there is one point. A couple of the prophets talk about Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and Cyrus, the Persian, as God's instruments. God actually says, I used Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, to bring about my will. I'm not, you know, it's not God saying, okay, go over there and kill all of them and burn their city. But he allows it, and he actually does that to use these foreign pagan armies as a teaching tool, as his servants, as his instruments. He says that in the prophets, which is shocking, because Israel's supposed to be a servant. Israel's supposed to be the one that he uses. But God sometimes uses these foreign pagan nations to do the things that the people of Israel need to see, which is the only thing that will turn them back on the right track eventually. Yeah. But anyway, so this is salvation history. So, uh, da, da, da. Yeah. Destroyed them, burned their city. He said to his servants, the feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Which so, by the way, if you were one of those servants who were like, he's like, he's like, um, see what I, we see what I did to these other people over right. here. The, why don't you guys go Ooh. and invite some other people? And they're like, they're like, okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> they're like, they're oh, like, boy. I really hope these people come. You know, they, they probably had a pretty good plea. They're Seriously. probably like the king really would like you to come really to a feast. You there. I mean, we're not kidding. Okay, here's what we have to... Well, let, let's finish this part, and then I have a question to pose. Pose. That I don't know if many people have considered yet. Oh. So, 
Uh, so he sent, yeah, the servants, the feast is ready. Go and invite those who are not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whoever you find. So the servants went out to the streets. They gathered all they found, bad and good alike. The hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to meet the guests, well, let's get to that in a second. Okay. Now, here's the, here's the part in the, there's a part in the parable that's missing. Okay. So we talked about this being a parable. It's a, it's a recounting of salvation history. So who are the servants? Prophets. The prophets. Who are they being sent to? Israel. Israel. Who, you know, is the foreign army that burns in their city? Babylon. Babylon, then later Rome, right? All this stuff happens. So who's the king? God, the father. He's inviting people to his son's wedding feast. Who's the son? Jesus Christ. How many people are there in a wedding? Uh, Everybody. I mean, in the actual marriage, who gets married? There's usually two two people. people. So who's the other one? Do you see what's missing in the parable? The king invites everyone to his son's wedding feast. Never tells you who his son is wedding. Did you catch that? It took me like four times reading this through to to think of that. And I realized, wait a second. If it's a wedding feast, that means there's another party involved. Why would the people not want to come to the wedding feast? Maybe they refuse to come to the wedding feast because they don't like the bride. So here's the question. You following me so far? Yeah, yeah, Here's well, the yeah, yeah, you're, you're, I, I'm, who, my gears are turning. Who is the son getting married to? Who is the wedding feast between? It's related to the first reading. Well, Very directly related. Well, the, I mean, my first mind goes to this dude who isn't wearing a wedding garment. <laughs> now forget him for a sec. Put, him, put him. him aside for a second. Okay, I'm putting him we'll aside. We'll get there in a second. Um, I mean, with, with, I, mean I, I can think theologically, I mean, the, the, yeah. the, that... God is actually wedding humanity to himself. What does the first reading talk about? It talks about a feast, like a wedding feast, right? Yeah. Who was invited to it? The first back. reading, Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was three aspects. There was a mountain, there was a feast, and there were... The nations. The foreign pagan nations who are all going to be brought into the covenant. What's the biggest controversy of the New Testament? Are we really supposed to let Gentiles into the covenant? Are we bringing outsiders into this family relationship and the covenant family of God? Could it be that the whole story of salvation history, in a certain sense, is God saying, I want the rest of the nations to be a part of this family. I want them wedded in. Because what does Jesus do? He brings the nations in. He weds himself as a bridegroom to his church. What is the church? It's universal. It is the Gentiles and the Israelites alike. Could it be that the reason that people don't want to come to the feast in the Old Testament is because they don't like the bride? We don't want these outsiders because that is the number one controversy in the early church. We don't want these outsiders coming into the covenant. Who are they to be a part of this family that we have been a part of for centuries? Who are they to be brought into this covenant that we share with God alone? Could it be an animosity between, because of the outsiders? What are the Pharisees and the scribes ticked at Jesus about? Because he's eating with outsiders. He's dining yeah. with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and people who are outside the covenant people like Samaritans. Could it be that that's where all this animosity is coming from? Because God has wanted from the beginning to reunite humanity, to bring the pagan foreign nations back into his kinship. And what we couldn't accept, and this isn't anti-Semitic, this isn't anti-Israel, this is the people of God. We don't like the people out there. This is just has always been our problem. Yeah, always. We don't like them. I don't want to be them. I mean, it's great. It's cool if we even share the gospel, but I'm not sure if I want to be sitting next to them in a pew at mass, right? Yeah. I don't know if I want them coming over to my house. I don't want to go to their party. We get like this. We do this. 
And I wonder if that's sort of the bottom line to all of this. God in Isaiah is telling us, I want the the foreign nations, the outsiders, those who are not, remember, was it last week's um, parable? Last week's reading was all about the workers who kind of came at the last minute and got the same share of the pay. Yeah. Who is that? Well, it's the Gentiles being brought into the covenant hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact. That's what people are ticked off about in that parable. I mean, there's a theme to the parables that Jesus is telling. It's the outsiders. It's the Gentiles, the goim, the nations, the others. That's who God wants as our brothers and sisters. That's why people are so upset to the point where they actually kill the servants and they will kill the son of man as well for this. But he does it nonetheless. Wow. That's my take on this. I was really excited because I've never seen this before. I've never heard it before. But I wonder if there's something to it. Well, I think it's awesome. I mean, it, it makes so much sense given that that not only are these um, um, subversive retellings of the history of Israel, but the the content of it is leading the mind so um, exultingly. Yeah. I mean, you look at this and you, I mean, I say, oh, absolutely. Do they not, they don't like the, they don't like the, uh, the, the bride. Like they just don't like the bride. Right. And like. It's not just, otherwise it's just a weird parable. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, we don't want to come to a party. They're like, they're like, man. I think there's more here. Yeah, and which which makes sense. And I mean, in some sense, like I think that a lot of um, interracial couples yeah. uh, can actually actually feel some of this pressure. Um, in, interreligious couples feel a lot of this pressure, yeah. like of saying, like, no, we identify with our own. We're um we're um um kinsmen, which is yeah. actually one an, an interesting thing because the word friend, so mm. if we keep going in the parable, yep, yep, yep. the word friend, it says uh, king met the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king, the king said to him, my friend, which friend. means which means kinsman. Yes. yes. My kinsman, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? See, he's like, he's like I'm going to come in, but I'm going to do like I'm going to do it I'm on my do own terms. My way. I'm going to do yeah. it my way, and I'm not actually. I'm not going to dress up like the rest of you, Jamokes. Right. I'm not actually going to put on. Jamokes. <laughs> um, Who are you? <laughs> but he, yeah, was, yeah. he was reduced to silence because, um, because again, there were some people who were coming in, but they're not going to play. They're yes. they're they're remaining I'll willful. Come. I'll come to your party, but I'm going to do it on my terms. Yeah. I'm not going to give myself to it. You know. I'll come to mass. I'll do the thing. But I don't really believe any of this stuff. Yeah, and and yeah, and it's it's like uh, yeah, the church isn't actually a, a, a moral authority. Yeah. You can actually cannot teach me about what the moral content of the universe is. Right. You don't have that. Yes, because I mean, like th- this is actually part of the thing that you see here. Is it, I've heard it said that the wedding garment is is like good deeds. It's like uh, it's, yeah. I mean, there's it's an yeah, interpretation. But, to a degree. But I, but I still think it's just actually it's a willful gesture saying that I'm going to participate, but I'm going uh, but I'm going to be remain willful in the midst of it. I'm not giving I, myself over. There's also a great quote in Isaiah, elsewhere in Isaiah. It's in Psalm sixty, or it's in Isaiah sixty-one, where God talks about wedding garments, mm. and it's it says I will. It's uh, Isaiah sixty-one ten. God says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Well, it's the it's Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. talks about the adornment being the garments of salvation. I've actually entered into the... So, I mean, is it possible to come into this celebration without really wanting to be a part of the family? I don't actually want to be a part of this covenant family. I don't want salvation. At least I don't want to be in the image and likeness of God. I don't want to be what you're offering me. 
You know what I mean? It's not yeah. necessarily even good works. I mean, Re- Revelation also has this. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was to be granted her to be clothed with fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So then yeah, you kind of add that. But Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Brian, Father Brian Larkin, I think he did his... Uh, his thesis for seminary on the garments, oh. the garments of glory. Dude, I need to read that. I think you can buy them at the Gap in Garments of Glory. In garments <laughs> of Glory. No, dude, that's going to be the name of my uh, new T-shirt company. <laughs> garments of Glory. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, um, but but it's an important – so whatever exactly this guy isn't clothed in, you know, in the parable, what we see is that it's not just God, okay, these people rejected it. Fine, I'll move on to these people. Everything's great. Everything's super. No, they still have to give themselves. I mean – God has gone out into the streets. He's gotten the 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 poor, and uh, there are other versions of this parable have God. You know, remember it was like homeless people and shoddily dressed people. I think it's another parable that Jesus tells. Remember people from the street. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we highways we, and byways. We yeah. kind of get this romantic imagery, and, and Pope Francis is, I think, making us see this in a lot of ways. We need to go out to the poor, to the outsiders, to the people who are cast off, who are feel rejected or who are hurt, but we can't just leave them there. It's not just saying, okay, come to the party and then everything is great. Don't worry about it. Jesus never brings in a sinner without the challenge to repent. You actually can't leave a sinner. You don't come to table with Jesus and stay a sinner. He actually challenges the prostitutes and the tax collectors to change. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't want them to not be a part of it, but they can't stay where they are. No. And that's, I think, really at the heart of what's going on with this guy. Yeah, it's great he was invited. It's great that he showed up, but he doesn't want to change. He doesn't actually want to conform to the will of God, which is actually literal. He doesn't want to change. Like, and, and yeah. they, they offer <laughs> yeah. uh, they offer yeah. the garments of salvation. He says, "Nope, I'm good. I'm fine how I am." It also suggests that there is, and our Lutheran friends would take issue at this, but it suggests that there's something that he was supposed to do himself because he was invited. It was a free invitation. Gets to come to the party, but he actually had to get himself ready. Everybody else got dressed. Everybody else sort of did the thing that they were supposed to do. There is a choice here. There actually is something to be done. Yes. It's not just, oh, I'm magically, you know, in God's family. No, I actually have to do something to put myself there. I've got to walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, our, our, Luther, our tradition, our Missouri Lucinda Lutheran friends who would say, you know, there's nothing we can do to actually contribute to this work of salvation whatsoever. I think it's baloney. No, we have to cooperate with grace. The invitation is great, but we have to say yes to it. We have to cooperate. We have to get dressed. We have to show up. Well, and, and properly and, disposed. I mean, that's why the white garment at baptism is something essential. Yes, it's essential to the right. See in this yeah, white garment. R I T E right. Yeah. 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 That that um. See in this garment the outward sign of your Christian dignity. Bring it unstained into the everlasting life of heaven. Yes. So it's like this. I mean, so you can see in baptism. I mean, the, the this guy was unwilling to take a shower, to be baptized, and to be <laughs> oh, clothed. Oh, good. Wow, that's good. Yeah. So. But and so so sorry. Take this so, analogy one step further. This guy was unwilling to to take the shower to be baptized. Yet he's still showing up to what. The feast. The feast. What is the feast? Mass. The Eucharist. Yeah. The mass. You can't receive the Eucharist if you're not predisposed, if you're not baptized, if you haven't cleansed and been become a part of the family and done the work. That's yeah. why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what, 11? He said, that's why some of you are dying <laughs> when you receive the Eucharist, because you're not discerning the body and blood of Jesus. Yeah. You have to be baptized. You have to be brought into the family. You have to do the work. Then you can come to the table and share the meal. To the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right, which is on the mountain, which where is the on... Lord will provide. 
and but yeah, do we want what he's providing? Behold the Lamb of God. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Woo. Boy, howdy. Like that boy, howdy. Oh. Uh, you guys well, well thanks everybody. for joining us and yep. and uh for another edition of the uh, word on the hill it's just the best to be able to have you and thanks for your attention and your time indeed and um share this with your friends share it share it and uh, you. You take take the insight i what i want to challenge you is is if you get an insight from this share it with one person two people is even better if you can share the insight that you have with two people this will go viral because uh, you know uh, viral proportionality is 1.9 or more as far as a ratio. One to 1.9 is actually the only way that a viral growth really does. You take lost place. most of us. I know that's okay, but it's you, okay. you, my friends, th- th- we don't really advertise for this, and so yeah. the the only way that uh, this gets out, um, you, is you. So absolutely. Um, so tell two of your friends uh, to uh, at least the ideas. You don't have to have them listen to us. You can distill it. It's actually the gospel is way better presented uh, from you in the first person. In the first person. I heard these guys in Colorado say that this was a good thing. No, cool. just just learn this stuff and take it to yourself and share the beautiful things, and um, you will convert the world through the power of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we for our part will be back next week. Um, that is unless a tornado takes me up and sends me to Oz then I'll just be here uh, but you can send us an email you can find us on Facebook you can find us on Pinterest apparently <laughs> and we will see you next week okay keep it real bye. bye The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado www.thomascenter.org you can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org see you next week